Restaurant Unstoppable episode 612 with Jonathan Horowitz. Oh, you never have it figured out. <laughs> no, you you never absolutely have it figured out. But you do get to the point where you say, hey, we've got a really great product. It's uh, gained a lot of traction. We've got, you know, a lot of fans out there. This probably would work somewhere else. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Here is a statistic for you. 89% of all guests will research a restaurant online before dining out. So you've got to start thinking about how you can extend your in-house hospitality and attention to detail to the online world. Bento Box is a great place to start. They will develop a restaurant website that not only leaves lasting impressions with your guests, but also provides hospitality-focused tools that are proven to drive revenue online and guests into your restaurant. Sign up today at getbento.com slash unstoppable and save up to $1,500 on initial setup for your new restaurant website. Get on it. Everybody loves payday, am I right? But loving your payroll provider, that's a different story. It's a little weird. Still, small businesses across the country love running payroll with Gusto. Gusto automatically files and pays your taxes. It's super easy to use, and you can add benefits and HR support to help take care of your team and keep your business safe. It's loyal, it's modern, and who knows, you might even fall in love. To learn more, head over to gusto.com slash un. Unstoppable, and when you run your first payroll, you'll get your first three months free. Again, that's gusto.com slash unstoppable. I'm sure you've heard of Revel, but have you heard of the Revel Advantage? It is the payment processing solution that seamlessly integrates into your Revel point of sale and platform to create a complete system tailored to your business needs. Revel manages both your POS and your payments with integrated software, hardware, and credit card processing to save you time and money so you can focus on your business. Learn more at revelsystems.com slash un unstoppable. And with excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Jonathan Horowitz. Jonathan, my man, are you feeling unstoppable? You better believe it. Yes, that's what we like to hear. So raised in New Hampshire, Booyah, by the way, another New Hampshire boy Absolutely On the mic uh, Jonathan Horowitz attended Rice University Then South Texas School of Law After graduation, Horowitz spent five years Practicing law before joining Lasco Enterprises in 2005 As Vice President of Marketing And Communication Later as Chief Brand Officer As a partner, Horowitz helped this brand Oversee the growth of the businesses for 10 years to more than 15 locations and 600 plus employees. Today, Horowitz serves as CEO of Legacy Restaurant Group, which consists of the original Nymphas on Navigation and three Antones Po' Boy locations. You guys got a lot going on. I cannot wait to dive into your story. Your name has come up a bunch of times when just doing the research of people I need to make an example of. So I know this is going to be a good one. I hope that was all good. No pressure. <laughs> uh, but before we dive in, let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? Treat people well. And they will treat you well. Yes. Treat people well and they will treat you well. Dive into that. Pull back some layers. Well, it applies to everything and everyone 
And it's not just about treating your employees well. It's not just about treating your customers well. It's not just about treating your family well. It's everything. I firmly, firmly believe that if you treat people well, good things will happen. If if you run contrary to that, if you do something, you know, if you're a jerk, you know, karma's bitch. It's yeah, just it the way it goes. Around. It just comes back around. And I think it really, really applies to business. I've always been intrigued when I hear people say, I don't care what anybody else thinks of me. I'm doing my own thing. You know, I just have to worry about myself. I, I just, it doesn't matter what other people think of me. And that doesn't work for me. I am constantly aware of how I come across to other people and what other people think about me. And it's very important to me that I am perceived as somebody that is easy to work with, is a good leader, etc. You name it. But I'm very conscious about how I'm perceived by other people. I don't, I don't agree with the philosophy that you just do your own thing and you don't worry about yeah. what other people think about you. And there's this whole wave right now of uh, just this movement of people seeing the value in emotional intelligence. And they say at the peak of emotional intelligence is self-awareness. And that's what I'm hearing from you. I like, love self-awareness. I'm yeah. all about self-awareness. And in fact, I preach that to, to some of my employees where – I can see them kind of going down a path that just they're not necessarily paying attention to how they're being perceived. And I talk about it all the time. I just, I want people to be more self-aware and it, it manifests itself in all kinds of different ways, whether it's your facial expressions or the tone of your voice or whatever it is, if you're gesticulating for some reason or whatever it is, that makes an impression on somebody that will influence how somebody else perceives you. And I am always trying to be aware for myself, what I'm doing, what I'm saying, how I'm saying it to make sure that I am putting forth the right emotion or what I'm trying to get across or um, not making somebody feel uncomfortable or, or something like that. So it's very important for me in my own personal life, and I try to impart that you know, to, to the employees yeah. as, as kind of a tool. Yeah. It kind of reminds me, you hear it all the time, when people will walk into a situation and something bad will happen to them. Somebody will do something bad to them, right? And they're like, I didn't even say anything. I don't know what their problem was. I didn't say a thing. And it's just like... Well, did you not say anything? Like, what was everything else saying? Right. And we we get so caught up in like what our words are and what we we say, and we think that's enough. But like, you there's so much communication that's happening. So many things that you're saying without saying it that right. that people just don't pick up on. And when they do not get the job or they do a, like get the vibe that they're uh, somebody doesn't like them. It's like, well, what did you say with all that other form of communication? What was your body saying? Like, what what did you do to this person? Right? Absolutely, yeah, and it. it it's it's constant every aspect of your life at every point in time you're generally being observed and some people tend to forget that um and that's part of being self-aware or not being self-aware yeah. and uh, i've always um w tried to work on being able to read other people because i think it really helps in business if you're negotiating something if you're having a discussion with an employee or a difficult discussion or whatever it is um, 
it's very important to be able to read somebody else's body language, not necessarily just listen to the words that they're saying. Um, and it's difficult sometimes, yeah. you know, uh, some people are, are not easy to read. Yeah. And this conversation is just getting started and you're already dropping value on us. So let's go to your story though. Let's, let's bring it to your story. Uh, you graduate from law school in 98. Uh, you spent five years as an attorney. Uh, and then all of a sudden, boom, 2005, you're in the restaurant world. Like what's going on? Where does yeah. it make sense to start? Well, so Actually, I'll go back even a little bit further. Okay. Um, you talked about you know growing up in New Hampshire. So I ended up in Houston uh, because I got a scholarship, golf scholarship, to play golf at Rice University. So I ended up coming you know halfway across the country and where it's a lot sunnier and warmer and don't have to worry about snow. Um, thought I was going to be a professional golfer. That was the whole plan all the time from the age of seven to 18 to 20 ish, you know, that was the plan. Yeah. And and then all of a sudden I looked around and I was like, you know, and I was around the time of guys like Phil Mickelson and Tiger Woods and we're all around the same age. And I kind of looked around and go, you know, if I try that as a career, I think I'm going to be very poor. So I ended up, you know, deciding to, to go to law school after graduating and I started practicing law and worked in a big firm, um, downtown Houston and was a prototypical young associate in a big firm, um, which actually I'll, I'll come back to. It's kind of a joke. I have what I'm doing now and what I was doing then. But, you know, I realized after five, almost six years that I wasn't what I wanted to do forever. And I kind of looked around and I looked at some of um, the partners, you know, in, in the big firm and I kind of looked at them and their lives. And I was like, is that what I really want? Is that what I'm working towards? Is that what I really want? And Can you paint a picture of like what that was specifically that you did not want? Well, um, you know, it's it's always working for somebody else, right? It's it, the there's a big machine around you where you're literally at that point we were billing in in point six or point five increments or whatever it was minutes of time out of your day that you had to bill and keep track of, and it was it. it frankly was monotonous tedious. kind of boring tedious yeah. and uh boy i don't miss that at all now that i'm thinking about it really <laughs> i'm like boy i don't miss that and and you know it wasn't all doom and gloom it wasn't terrible there were certain aspects of it that i did like i met some really great people it was a great education no question about that um even though i don't practice law you know right now anymore i use it all the time you know it's always there but you know it got to the point i was approaching around 30 years old ish um, at that point, uh, wasn't married, didn't have kids or anything like that. And I kind of came to that point where I just said, if this isn't what do you want to, what you want to do forever, what do you want to do? What do you like? Yeah. You know, and, and still got time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And kind of had that introspective conversation and said, what do you like? And I said, I like food and wine, right? <laughs> I like eating and drinking. And, um, kind of grew up, you know, my parents were into it as well. However, nobody in the family, including myself, had ever worked in restaurants, right? No actual industry experience. So I happened to see right around that time, I happened to see a small wine bar uh, in Houston that had recently opened, um, opened in uh, early 2003 or September of 2003. And uh, I sent, literally sent a cold call email 
Went in one one night, uh, talked to the bartender. Place was tiny, nine hundred square feet. And I said to the bartender, "Who owns this place? You know, it's pretty cool." And back then, this was two thousand four. Wine bars weren't as plentiful yeah. as they are now, for sure. I said, "This place is cool. Who owns it?" She gave me the guy's card, and I literally sent that cold call email. I said, "Hey, this is who I am. This is what I'm doing. I'm practicing law right now, but I don't love it. I'm real interested in learning a little bit about this industry and the business. Maybe we can get together and talk. Maybe there's something I can do. I can shadow. I can come in and pull some shifts, or just kind of learn a little bit." And that was uh, fall of '04, and we got together, talked, kind of hit it off, um, spent a couple hours, and at that point in time, uh, Jerry and his wife were planning on trying to expand the business, and they were looking for somebody to help them, you know, grow the business. And we spent about the next six months back and forth and back and forth, and I ended up in June of '05, uh, literally one day being an associate in the law firm. And the next day I bought part of the company and became a bar owner. Yeah. I, you know, I mean, literally it was like jumping off a cliff. Oh my God. I can't wait to, to t- dive into what drinking from the fire hose was like, uh, <laughs> but just to like to break that down a little bit, a lot of people uh, will look at, I mean, experience as an asset or just money in general as an asset, but there's so many different types of assets that we can acquire uh, to, to attract onto ourselves the people that can help, uh, complete or round off whatever it is we're trying to do in our life. And you don't necessarily have to come up through the ranks of being the dishwasher to the, you know, the, the bus boy, to the server, to the bartender, to the general manager, to the, the one day owner. I mean, that sure. is one way to do it. And that's probably the way I recommend doing it. But also there are so many things that are needed in today's world to be competitive as a restaurant tour. So many other skills and assets, PR, uh, accounting, and then obviously the big one is law. So if you're you're a restaurant owner and you don't have that piece of the puzzle yet, you don't have a go-to legal person, and a lawyer writes you saying, hey, I want to learn about the restaurant industry, you are a huge asset. You'd be stupid to turn your nose to the opportunity to have somebody in-house on your team with all that legal background. background. Sure. And it it ended up being, you know, it was very fortuitous. It was one of those right place, right time, just right situation kind of things. And it it ended up, you know, working out quite well. And it ended up being a a 10-year stint. Um, And, you know, again, I didn't really do a whole lot of practicing law per se, Um, but by doing that, you know, by kind of jumping in, I used to joke all the time that, you know, for many, many years, there was nobody who ran more cat five cable through the walls of any of those places than I did, (laughs) you know? And it's like you do, it was one of those, you do anything and everything. It was very small business trying to grow it. It was, you know, family kind of mom and pop and we, everybody did everything. And notwithstanding the fact that I didn't, come up through the dishwasher server manager type of track. Um, I learned a lot very quickly kind of watching things grow. And uh, that translated into, as we continued to move forward in growth, learning about construction and that process and, you know, which now is serving me very, very well in my current role uh, as we look to, you know, roll out more locations. Yeah. I mean, but just having that 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 law background so much of what happens in business uses legal 
language. Absolutely. So there's that, that barrier that you don't have to break through. So you can probably absorb a lot more about business in general because you speak the language. You've been taught the language. So things are being absorbed faster, I would imagine. To some extent, yes. I would say in addition to that, one of the things that I've found that it's been extremely helpful in is knowing what you don't know and being able to identify and recognize that there is something out there that's important, but you just don't know what it is. And I have found a lot over the years, particularly you know over the past few years in this current role, that I can identify where something is not right. I may not have the solution. I may not know exactly how to rectify it, but as long as I can identify it in time and find somebody who does know, I'll be in pretty good shape. And so I think, again, kind of comes back to that self-awareness thing Mm -hmm. where, you know, there are people out there who just will not let go of anything and say, I can do it. I can do it. It's all my, you know, control. Like the fear of being looked at as somebody who doesn't know what they're doing, but you're not doing anybody any service when you, when you don't reveal your true hand and your, your true strengths and weaknesses, because it's okay not to be good at everything. I think that's what people don't realize. Right. Well, and, and certainly in the cases of a lot of type A entrepreneurs in particular, who are really kind of doing everything themselves, it's very difficult to give up control or to admit, hey, I may not totally understand this. I may not, you know, I don't need any other help. I don't, I don't need help. I don't so again, help. That, that self-awareness of just knowing what you're good at, knowing what you don't know, and being willing to go to somebody and roll over on your back, reveal your belly and say, hey, I'm vulnerable here. I need help. Help me. Yeah. Um, so when did, like, before we get into that, I think that's going to be something that's, that's important. What was the first two years like? Is this what the first two years was like? As an, because you, you came in and you were kind of just in the operations. Like, what were you doing initially for those two years? Um, boy, we, we were doing a little bit of everything. We started um, pretty early on developing new things and working on new locations. So, everything that goes into that, whether it's um, looking at leases, scoping out new space, um, setting up infrastructure and figuring out how to get things built, dealing with contractors. So there's a lot of that. Then um, got into menu development, right? That was all part of it too. That was all kind of a collective process. Um, Of course, the PR, the marketing, the advertising, you know, we were really working on growing the brand. Were you on the floor at this time? No. Did you ever get on the floor? Never did. Okay. Yeah, never did your business partner saw something in you and they, they kind of just said, it doesn't make sense to waste this talent on the floor. You're more of a administrative yes. uh, leadership yeah. role and they yeah. put you right into right it. Right on the business side. Yeah. Totally on the business side. Not, not so much on the day to day operational side. So where were you, were you just listening to them? Were you learning from them or were you going out and getting the information, uh, diving into content in other places to, that's another whole question. Like being the new guy, <laughs> how do you make suggestions in a way where you're not overriding people that ha- were the original founders? Like sure. How, like sure. there's so many questions I have right now. Well, um, to answer where the do we first start? question, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, in, in the process of learning, vast majority of it, is, it was experiential, you know, just learning on the job, just figuring it out. You just got to figure it out because, um, actually, my partners back then, n- neither one of them had been in the restaurant business either. Uh, w- one was a pilot, okay, <laughs> and uh, one was an attorney. And so 
So you must have gotten along well with the attorney. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for the <laughs> most part, for the most part. Um, but, you know, we were all kind of learning okay. as we were going. So it was a lot of on the job, just kind of figuring things out. Um, and then, you know, in terms of the, the second aspect of that, in terms of being able to provide input and give input and um, when it when it becomes a collaborative process like that, uh, it just kind of happens naturally because you're all trying to figure things out and make it work together um, as a team. And as long as everybody's willing to listen, accept, you know, input from others, then you're going to be in good shape. It's when you have situations where people say, again, that kind of that entrepreneur, you know, I don't need your help. I got this, you know, I got it covered. I don't want to hear from you. That's where people tend to get in into trouble um, because they kind of close themselves off and, and um, they don't have the ability to see how they're being perceived or how their product is being received out there um, in the marketplace. And so I've seen, I've seen the good and I've seen the bad of that. Um, I've seen it both ways and I've seen kind of the consequences um, of the negative side of that where if somebody comes, becomes too insular and again, I don't care what anybody else thinks about me and and things like that generally doesn't end well. Yeah. So I'll, I know when you came there, you're employee number 12, right? Yeah. Employee number 12. This was, they had one location. Yes. Uh, and had just, just opened a tiny little second location. Um, I say tiny. It was, you know, it was smaller than the first one, which was tiny. Okay. So <laughs> just to be clear, we're, we're still in 2005. Lasco Enterprises LLC is the company we're talking about. Yeah. And I, I want to dive into how you help scale this company and what that looked like, because I'm sure there's tons of lessons there. Uh, But first, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsors. We'll be right back to dive in. So this probably does not come as a surprise to you, but as you can imagine, I look at a lot of restaurant websites because I'm constantly researching my next guest, successful restaurateurs, and you'd be surprised how many of those people have bento box websites. I mean, I almost know instantly when looking at these websites because they're always so stunning and they always check every box, everything that a good restaurant website should have. These websites have them, and it's because they're going to Bento Box to get the work done. And not only will Bento Box leave a lasting impression with your guests, but Bento Box websites come with hospitality-focused tools that are proven to drive revenue online. With Bento Box, you can easily update menus, promote events, share press, sell gift cards, take catering orders, and book private events directly from your website. Bento Box puts you in control so you can focus on what matters most, your restaurant. Bring your restaurant hospitality online with bento box by signing up today at getbento.com slash unstoppable and save up to $1,500 on initial setup for your new restaurant website. We're back and we're about to dive into how you help scale the role you had in scaling uh, this restaurant group, Lasco Enterprises from when you came on board, 12 employees, by the time you left, you helped this company get to, I think it was over 600 employees Yeah, in in 10 years. So like, what did that look like? I mean, at what point did you really start? Did you, did you get to the point where you said, I got this figured out. Let's start scaling. Oh, you never have it figured out. (laughs) No, you, you never absolutely have it figured out, but you do get to the point where you say, 
hey, we've got a really great product. It's uh, gained a lot of traction. We've got, you know, a lot of fans out there. This probably would work somewhere else. What made your product great? Well, uh, back then, particularly with the with the wine bar, um, it was still relatively unique. Uh, we also sold retail wine out the door, which you can do in Texas if you just have a beer and wine license and don't serve liquor. Um, so that was unique. Uh, it provided a really wonderful environment. It was welcoming and comfortable, and you know we had some food, but not a ton. But it was you know good food, pizzas, cheese plates, charcuteries, and things like that great products, you know, great wine products. And it just became a really great gathering place. It, it provided uh, a wonderful environment and ap- atmosphere for people to get together. What was that atmosphere like? We're, 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 like paint that atmosphere. Cause I think that atmosphere is really important. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was relatively minimalistic in terms of design. Um, a lot of kind of communal seating. Um, this one location, the original location actually grew over the, over the span of 10 years, it grew actually more 15 years from 900 square feet to 9,000 square wow. feet. Yeah. It's a beast now. I mean, it's huge. It's, it's really huge, but it's, it, it always kind of had that comfortable kind of neighborhood gathering environment where people would feel comfortable coming in suits at the end of the day, end of the workday or coming in, you know, shorts and a t-shirt and just kind of like hanging out. You have, the the same people those same people all drinking the same wines and you know really enjoying themselves i mean that that was really cool so so we created that environment and then we kind of expanded on that and started a new concept um which was called max's wine dive which was a a full-on restaurant but again wine focused and the the hook there was that it was what we called gourmet comfort food uh, paired with really awesome wine and so it was sort of like a dive bar, but with really kind of gourmet comfort food, which is a juxtaposition in and of itself. Um, and it was small and it was cool and funky and dark. And it was kind of modeled after like a Upper West Side dive bar kind of situation. And that really took off. And so we opened the first one in December of 06. Okay. And so not long after. Yeah, you uh, there for not, a year. Yeah, exactly. And so then... That really took off, uh, and we ended up at one point, I think there were nine of those, uh, including outside of the state of Texas. Um, and so that one actually got recognized as like a um, breakout brand of the year uh, by Nation's Restaurant News. And, you know, that really was a great vehicle for us. And again, you know, during that time, ran the gamut of doing all these various things you need in order to, to grow like that. So site selection, city selection, leases, construction, infrastructure. Then you get into training and the menus and the wine and all that. And so, you know, we just kept adding, obviously, to, you know, the team. Um, corporate team got a lot bigger. Um, we started to compartmentalize a little bit more. We're strengths. Um, strengths-based leadership was one of the things that we followed in terms of finding the right niche for the right person based on personalities. What uh, is strength-based strength based leadership? Yeah, so kind of as it would suggest, you figure out what your strengths are uh, by taking a series of, of tests, you know, whether it's personality, acumen, and things like that. And there's actually, a, there's a book, 
involved and it will tell you kind of what you're most suited for um, based on your responses. And then you use that as a tool to determine where to place somebody within the organization and kind of match people up to say, okay, well, it's kind of like the, um, oh, the sign, you know, your sign, you, you're not, yeah. not going to mesh well with this person or you're going to really work well with this person. Um, and so you try to avoid putting people in, in close contact who would clash um, from a business perspective. And so, you know, we worked on that uh, a lot as well in terms of creating the culture of the company, um, which everybody, you know, obviously knows is such a, a crucial part of, of growing a business and, and running a business. Um, so we relied on that fairly well. I was always, I always came out in my, um, the responses and, and the evaluations and everything was like a, a collaborator, you know, want to bring people together, um, concerned about other people, you know, things like that. Um, whereas, uh, my business partner was totally on the other end of the spectrum. We, we couldn't have been more opposite, which is a good thing. Yeah. Right? Cause it's complimentary, yeah. right? It, it should be complimentary. Um, but yeah, I always joke that I got the, uh, I, I always got the squishy stuff, right? <laughs> that, that, that was my thing. It was always the, the squishy things like the, the, marketing and the PR and yeah. the relationships well, well, and things like years, that. Well, after two years, you took the role of, uh, was it uh, director? I scrolled down. Oh, uh, well, at, at one point it was... VP it, of Marketing and Communication. Right, yeah. right. And then Chief Brand Officer. And it was all, I mean, it was all about kind of helping to build the brand, getting getting the word out there. And then I focused a lot towards the latter stages on what I called relationship marketing, um, which was finding other businesses out there that we could collaborate with, create relationships that were mutually beneficial, um, and, and figure out how we could use those things to help promote ourselves and the business and, and grow things. And a lot of that involved uh, community involvement, um, you know, getting involved in restaurant associations and things like that, where you're not only giving back, but you're also being given the opportunity to talk about your businesses and promote them and, and help grow them. So um, spent a lot of time doing those both locally and in it, the other places where we were opening. It's almost like you're reading my mind because that's one <laughs> thing I, I pulled from your LinkedIn profile is uh, relationship marketing. And that's yeah. a word that I pulled out of there. And I'm, I, I have said it before and I'll say it again. I think the most valuable asset any restaurateur can have is their ability to manage relationships. Sure. So when I see something <clears> like <throat> relationship marketing as like one of the, the, the things that you did on your portfolio, I'm like, I need to dive into that. So you kind of already identified that you fell into this lane of the gushy stuff or the mushy <laughs> stuff. <laughs> right. Uh, right. So let's, let's pull back some layers on what you learned about these uh, intangible relationship marketing, uh, branding, marketing in general. Sure. Uh, where does it make sense to start there? Well, I think you always start with a story. Yeah. Um, you know, if you have a great story to tell, you're ahead of the game as it is. Because um, we always talk, you know, we even, even now we talk here, it's like, it's not enough to just tell people that you have a great product and you opened your store again today and the lights are on and everybody shows up and they're getting paid that in and of itself isn't going to bring people in. It's not that sexy. Um, if you can create a story that is compelling and A, it makes it easier to share, B, people are going to respond to it, they'll react to it uh, and hopefully engage with you. And so 
the relationship marketing aspect to me was figuring out how we could leverage our story because we had a really cool story. We had a great product. Um, and, you know, figuring out how we could take that, get it out there while working with other folks, benefiting other people, benefiting the community, um, but at the same time really being able to expose them to our brand. Um, we did a lot of, you know, and restaurateurs are, are notoriously charitable, um, getting involved in the community, doing charity events, doing fundraisers, etc. And, you know, that is step one of, of being part of your community and d- establishing those relationships were, which are so important um, within the business community as well. It's not just B2C. It's certainly B2B um, at the same time. We also did a lot of partnerships where we could leverage our products and get stuff for it. Um, I'm a big fan of bartering. Yeah. You know? an example of how you would leverage your wine uh, sure. restaurant-focused products. Sure. So we had a great venue. Right. And what do we what do we provide? What's our story? What do we provide? Well, we provide a great venue, great food, great wine. So who needs that stuff? Well, companies need it. Right. They want to entertain. They want to throw parties, whatever it is. Um, Media publications, they need it. They want to throw parties. They want to um, have community events, etc. So, for example, publication here, which is actually part of a national publication, but the Houston Business Journal, right? There's business journals. There's 50 of them around the country. Um, We would provide them with venues to do happy hours or parties or or things like that in return for advertising. Makes perfect sense. Yeah. Because advertising by itself is really expensive. Um, But, you know, the cost to us, in theory, is about 30% of what the retail price would be. So, you know, that kind of thing was a great avenue for us um, to get involved and and to get people to come to our location. The flip side of all of this is you can give a bunch of stuff away, right? You can make donations, you can provide food and do all that other stuff. And somebody will put your logo on a program or a poster. Well, that's nice and all. But what do you really want in this business? You want people to walk through the door because I believe and everybody should believe that your operation is so great and that your product is so good that if you can just get that person to walk through the door, you're going to keep them right. They're going to come back. Yeah. That that really reminds me of a piece of advice. Like I had from another guest Tzatziki's and people would always try to get him to donate money. Sure. He would always donate, but he would never donate money. He always donated the product Yeah, because for him, he's like, I can't, I'm I'm not going to benefit from just throwing money and donating money at you. I'd rather have you have the food be part of the experience and have people say, what the heck is this thing? It's so good. Where is it? And then brand it. And, but even better, if you have the space and you bring them in that, that event space, bring them in, let people really experience. And then if you provide I'm assuming you're catering this event too. Sure. There you go. Like even more opportunity to experience the, and it's a media outlet. So what kind of people are they bringing into your, to this event? Other media people. Right. You better believe they're sharing that. Right. Or business people or, you know, other, you know, high value members of the community that you want to experience your place. You want, you know, because chances are 
they may have not come in before, mm-hmm. you know, and it's a great opportunity to, to get them exposed to it. And hopefully they'll come back. Yeah. And I think the other thing that I think really stood out to me about that, that statement of relationship marketing is that we tend for some reason to look at people in our community, other like businesses as competition. And it's those people who almost never do as well as those who look at other people in their community as colleagues, as peers, Absolutely. as people to say, hey, resources. You, yeah, we, you're, you have a great thing going. You're doing it right. We're doing it right. Let's combine our righteous, our rightness, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> not righteousness, but our rightness. You that know? too. <laughs> yeah, or righteousness, right? And we can w- create win-win situations where we can align our brands together, promote one another, and be stronger together, help each other out. And if you can align your your brand with other su- successful brands, then that's roots. You know that oh, that's yeah. relationship. That you're, you can recover so much faster when the shit hits the fan. Absolutely. Well, yeah. and and it and it goes back to something we touched on earlier in terms of being part of a community, not just giving back, but being a resource um, and being available and being concerned about what other people think about you and how you interact and how you um, participate in the industry. Um, you know, there there's plenty of competition out there, but it, you don't have to view it that way. Um, there are a number of people. It's part of the reason why actually I'm still so involved in the local restaurant association and the statewide restaurant association. Um, I have met some absolutely phenomenal people who in theory should be quote with the air quotes competitors. Um, but not only are we friends, but they're resources and I, I can be a resource to them. We, we very often, call each other and say, Hey, um, do you have a, do you have a vendor you like for this particular product or who, who services your equipment for that or, or something? And, you know, I could probably figure those things out over time, you know, and do some research or whatever, but it's so much easier to call up a buddy who's technically a competitor, but call him up and say, look, I know you're doing a great job on this. Tell me how you're doing it. Right. Well, what can you tell me about this? Um, you know, another uh, restaurateur that I think you have spoken to, you know, in Houston is huge into delivery, third party delivery services, big part of their business. And we don't do that so well. We don't do it a lot. Um, but I have called him numerous times, said, talk me through this. Is it worth it? How, what do your metrics look like? How, how do you make it Who work? Is this? Uh, well, both Aaron Lyons and Thomas Wynn. Oh man, I wish I went deeper into those yeah, conversations. They're I mean, in the past. They're uh, great. I mean, and, and they're they're both fantastic guys. Very successful. Have great products. But um, you know, we bounce stuff back and forth all the time. Also, both lawyers. I don't think I've ever had three lawyers on the show in a week. And it's kind of crazy. I was wondering I, if it was a prerequisite. I, I to be call a us. Uh, actually, actually, Aaron is a financial guy. Thomas is a lawyer. There, there are plenty of others. I call us. Oh, that's right. I, I call us recovering attorneys. Thomas is a lawyer, but it was right. uh, Ben Tran. Right. Who right, I right. also had on the show. Exactly. Another lawyer. Yeah. 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 Um, there's a bunch of us old frust- frustrated lawyers. <laughs> I know. How do we all end up? You know why? It's it's. You know, there's booze involved, right? So that's how we end up doing this. <laughs> I got you. <laughs> so, okay, uh, where where did we leave off before I got distracted? We're- well, I mean, we were talking about partnership marketing and and growing the brand, growing the businesses, um, and you know, all of the pitfalls, yeah. you know, that that kind of go along with that. And we 
we discovered um, over the years how difficult it was to bring a new brand into a new market. Um, some were successful, some weren't. But one of the things that we really tried to do when we first went into new markets, for example, we took um, Max's uh, wine dive to Atlanta and Chicago and Denver. And one of the first things that we really tried to do when we were making inroads into the local community there was figure out how we could get involved. We went to the local chambers of commerce, talked to the restaurant association, talked to um, local nonprofits, you know, this is who we are. We're coming in. This is our product. Um, we'd like to get involved. And, you know, to whatever extent that is, it helps to get your name out there in the community, show that you're going to be a good neighbor. You want to be involved, you know. Um, and, and I think people who take the opposite path of, I don't want to be involved in the community. It doesn't matter what anybody else is doing doesn't matter what anybody thinks of us. I'm not going to go out and um, visit other people's restaurants because I, I don't care what they're doing. I'm just focused on my own. It ends up being very counterproductive and it's, it's difficult um, because you end up in this bubble uh, where you don't see what's going on around you. Uh, yeah, you isolate yourself. Yeah, yeah it's, it's never, never a good thing. So what else? You mentioned that you, you try to break into other markets. You learned a couple times uh, what to do, what not to do. What else have you learned about what does work when trying to transition to another market? If you saturated your current market and you want to continue with the same concept, but you need to go further away from home, like what's the best approach there? You know, it's interesting. Um, again, I've had some successes, hits, some hits, some misses. I think if you have the ability, and this is something that we didn't do, um, I think if you have the ability to open more than one, not necessarily at exactly the same time, but to gain a little bit more of a foothold, um, particularly if you're going in with something unique, kind of something that's a little different, if you can have a few locations going around the same time, it's kind of a self-fulfilling circle. Yeah, yeah. The awareness, the exposure, the comfort level, people get kind of get a comfort with legit it. Legit, if, if you see three in a yeah. month versus just that one, what's that place? You know, it was interesting. I had always, I, I had, we had talked to some private equity guys over the years. And one of the stories that I really, really always stuck with me was the story of Potbelly, the, the sandwich shop. Mm -hmm. And their first kind of entry into the Washington, D.C. area. And they opened one store and it was not doing very well. And then these, you know, this whatever it was, private equity group got involved and they said, you need to open 12. And once they did that, once they kind of saturated the market, gave themselves some legitimacy and really got involved and got out there, all of them did well, as opposed to just one kind of trying to make it on its own. It's, it's kind of like that safety in numbers. You're trying to like, you're almost provoking FOMO, fear of right, missing out, right? right? right. Like you open all these places at once, and all of a sudden, you as the consumer are like, I missed something. Sure. Like there's like, this place must be good if they open so many all yeah. at once. And, like, well, I got to try this place out. Well, and you know, obviously, not everybody has the means to do yeah, that, and, and we didn't. I mean, you know, we didn't do it, but I think looking back in terms of a, of a learning, you know, from that entire process and, and, watching and reading about some other stories. Um, 
I, I think that was something that would have been very helpful. Yeah. You know, if you have the ability yeah, to do it. I have heard that a lot of people say, well, they'll, they'll, instead of doing two or three locations in a separate city, like you're suggesting, yeah, yeah. they'll do one in Atlanta, one in Denver and one right. in someplace else. So you're, you're separating your people. Uh, you know, you're, you're, you're moving yourself all over the place. Yeah. Whereas if you do take that approach that you just shared and you, you, you you're, you're, you're dividing your team into two separate locations, but at least you can build that, that you can penetrate you a hard like right there. Yeah. You can have that cluster right there. Right. So you can have your people together and you can develop that brand awareness right. solid in that one spot and that strategic growth. I'm not just trying to go boom yeah. all over the place, try to be everywhere, everything to everyone. Right. And, and, and if, and if you really think about it, that's exactly what you've done in your home base, mm-hmm. right? For us, for example, you know, in Houston, we filled out Houston, Texas market, and we kind of had that clustering effect. Um, but then we did one over here and one over there and one over there, and it didn't work out so well. Okay. Um, uh, any other big lessons we can draw from? We haven't even gotten to where you are now. You've spent <laughs> the past uh, four years uh, with Legacy Restaurant Group. Yeah. But any other big lessons, any other, like, knowledge bombs you can drop on us before we move into more current days? Well, you know, again, it's very difficult for me not to come back to the people piece uh, in terms of learning, uh, you know, again, from both sides, kind of the positive and the negative of the benefits of treating people well, uh, being concerned, you know, about uh, how you're treating people and how you're being perceived uh, I think those things have really kind of stuck with me that I've tried to carry over, you know, now um, assuming the role of actually kind of leading uh, a company of now we're 250, 260 people uh, and growing. We're we're going to open at least three new locations this year in 2019. So, um, you know, we've set that path for growth. And I think you, not a day goes by where you, I'm not reminded of the importance of the people um, that not only help make this run on a daily basis, but also the people that walk through the door. And, you know, I come back to so many times I come back to the idea that if you're treating those people well, they will treat you well in return and good things will happen. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that's borne out more often than not. Yeah. I, I think, I think, why do you think people true. lose sight of that? Why do you think people drift away from that human element? Again, you know, it comes back to getting into your own bubble, um, getting isolated and just being so focused on what you're doing. You just kind of forget that there's yeah. other people out there. And the minute, I think the minute you start forgetting the impact that you have on other people, particularly if you're in a position of power, you don't even have to abuse it. But if you're indifferent to how you make other people feel, how you treat other people, whatever you're, you're losing, you're, you're going to lose them because they are eventually going to stop caring about doing things for you in return. And you know, people talk all the time, you know, it's a team effort and you want great culture and all that other stuff. There's a ton of things that you can say and think about all that. It, to me, again, it comes down to, are you treating people well? And are you concerned about how they perceive you as a leader? Um, 
And I think if you keep those things in mind, you have a much better shot of actually getting a great return, not only from your employees, but from the customers that walk through the door. Um, Employees come first. Customers are very, very, very close second uh, because they pay the bills and give the employees their jobs. So after 10 years of helping scale this company to 15 locations, uh, 2015, you decided to part ways. Uh, you go, you, you start your own uh, uh, creative services uh solution above the fold creative services with my wife with your wife uh <laughs> and w- w- i'm curious why why you helped build this organization you had equity in the, the organization were you just try were you just curious in other things like why why get away from it you know our business changed um the the relationships change you know uh partnerships end for different reasons uh and so it was time. I mean, it, it, it had been, any, it any, had, it had run its course. Any lessons on, uh, partnerships or anything you, like the protect? Oh God, or, how much time do we have? <laughs> just give me a nugget. Something that like, I don't, I don't, I'm, I have no idea why you went your own way or whatever happened, but was there anything that you guys could have been better about with communicating or anything along those lines that you can share with us? I, I think, and, and again, this is not a novel approach, but I think anytime anybody considers getting into a partnership arrangement with whomever it might be, best friend, total stranger, family member, whatever it is, A, take the time, spend the money to have really good documents uh, and think very, very carefully about who has control, how much control they have, how much control do you want, and play out the scenario of what's going to happen when you don't like each other anymore. Mm -hmm. Is that, is that exit strategy there? Have you built that? exit? Exactly. And, and who has the control, um, really becomes one of the biggest points of contention. Um, you know, when things change and so it's, it's difficult to model every scenario up front because you're speculating, but, you have to go through the exercise of figuring out who is going to be in control, you know, on, on the back end. Um, and you have to, you have to plan for it. A lot of people don't do that because you're excited about it. Yeah. You want to get going and and you're great friends and you know, everything's fantastic and you're going to put in some money and maybe you'll put in some money and you know, it'll all work out. We're not like everybody else. Right. Yeah. It's going to be fine. (laughs) I I hear these horror stories. It it certainly won't be us because we're great buddies. Um, And eventually, inevitably, you know, something will change and something always changes. So great book. I'm going to turn my listeners on to if they haven't heard me say yes yet is finish a big by Bo Burlingham, a past guest on the show. Also previous uh, editor, at large or editor, chief editor for Inc. Magazine. Yeah. Uh, Finish Big basically talks about how to build the business with an e- with an exit strategy, which, which people just don't do. Great book. Check it out. Um, okay. We got to talk about legacy restaurants. Sure. Uh, so w- I'm, I'm kind of just assuming here, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm assuming you built this, this uh, firm, of, of this creative firm, and you picked up a client. And well, actually, it, it grew into something great. Actually, not no? exactly. Okay. Not what exactly. Happened? So this was, I guess, uh, the the summer of fifteen, and I had um, ended, you know, with with Lasco, and 
my wife at that time, who's also in the industry, she's an events person, so uh, event coordinator, director. And she was trying to figure out what she was going to do next. She was kind of in between things. And we said, hey, you know, we've got a lot of experience. We've got a lot of skills. Why don't we put our heads together? And so we, we formed this, this company. And she was going to handle producing events. I was going to do PR and marketing. And we started down that path. And literally a handful of months later, like less than six months later, um, she got a great job offer. <laughs> and I got the opportunity here to be the CEO of a company that I really, you know, and, and we had been talking over the years and I was uh, familiar with the company and we had talked in the past, but now I was quote, you know, available and there was a need. And so not six months after we had started, you know, we, uh, my wife and I broke up our business partnership and she took her job and, <laughs> and I took this job. And so, um, that, that creative company that still technically exists has basically been dormant for, for the past three, three and a half years. I got you. So, uh, Neil Morgan is the, the founder of legacy restaurants. And it kind of sounds like Neil's whole thing was property real estate. Uh, uh, he was a real estate developer. Developer. He was a real estate developer. That was his thing. Um, uh, he, he's a bit older. This is kind of, he he jokingly says, you know, this is like a retirement project for him. Um, but he was a su- successful real estate developer, uh, had never been in the restaurant industry, you know, ha- had never really done anything. But uh, both of these brands, so these are, hence the name, you know, legacy restaurants. These are two legacy brands yeah. in Houston. Um, you know, uh, Antone's was founded in 1962. Ninfas on Navigation was founded in 1973. So these are, you know, institutions. They're iconic brands in historic Houston. Historic, from yes, what I've been they, able to They, they are up. historic brands. Like they're responsible for things like fajitas. The fajita. Yeah. Like, so if you actually look it up, it's it's accepted, you know, commonly accepted that the physical act of putting, you know, uh, outside skirt steak into a flour tortilla and rolling it up and that was invented at the original Ninfas on Navigation in by 1973 by, yes, Mama Ninfa, Ninfa Lorenzo. And so um, Neil had the opportunity in the early 2000s um, to actually purchase both brands, which had ended up in bankruptcy. They were totally unrelated, two different families. Uh, Ninfas was the Lorenzo family and Antone's was the Antone family. And for whatever reasons, they both of those companies, those family brands had ended up in bankruptcy right around the same time. And Neil had been involved financially through the bankruptcy and he ended up buying both brands, uh, right around 2005, 2006. And so for a number of years, probably 10, 11 years or so, he had had various people kind of helping him kind of run the company and they had tried to do different things and, you know, to varying levels of success. And as I mentioned earlier, he, he had reached out to me a few times while I was still at Lasco and seeing if I had any interest in, in helping him. And, you know, obviously I was very busy and we were growing. And so I always said no. Um, but then, you know, in the summer of 2015, I was available. The, he had a, a need, wanted to bring somebody in who had more experience, you know, growing with, with, uh, various brands and things, and it just kind of worked out. So we, we got together, 
uh, and I started here uh, in September of 2015. Yeah, and I made a note I had to because you talked about you know when it comes to de- the developing a brand or, or uh, marketing a brand, it all starts with the story. And you go to two restaurants <laughs> that have incredible stories, such so, good bones. Yeah, I love. I actually love talking about this because um, I've had. I've only, in theory, right, had two real restaurant jobs. And one was with two unknown, totally, you know, growing first generation type brands. And now this, I walk into a 55 year old and a 45 year old brand, you know, that have incredible histories uh, and phenomenal stories and, you know, are just really kind of ripe for uh, essentially a rebirth and a, and a growth because these two brands really haven't grown at all um, over the years. Now they, from their inception, they grew and they grew. And then of course they ended up in bankruptcy. So they kind of went up and they went down and they've, for the most part, um, not treaded water for the past you know decade or so, but um certainly haven't grown in, in locations or numbers or anything like that. The quality has certainly improved dramatically. Um, and, and the size of, of the original Nymphas has grown to some extent. But at this point, we've taken the past couple, three years to really kind of stabilize, get things right, um, brought in some yeah, you know, key players. So, so yeah, we're getting into it right yeah. now. So I kind of want to paint that picture. You come to a restaurant group, legacy restaurant, and it's clear where Neil Morgan's really trying to preserve the history of these locations. You can tell that's his passion project. Yes. You can tell that he sees something in these brands that need to be preserved. He's surrounding himself with the people that can pull it off. And you get here, 2015. What do you see? Where are you looking? What are you identifying as the the course correction? Uh, series of events that have to happen to get to where you are today. Sure. So most of it was operational um, and it was some key players on the corporate side um, that we could tell pretty early on, you know, needed to change. We needed to kind of upgrade in in certain positions um, that would allow us to operate better, more efficiently, um, stabilize the P and L's and the bottom line and kind of look at all of our systems and our, um, like our purchasing and, you know, all of those things and really just kind of take it and wrap our brains around it and figure out how do we make each element better. And so we made some changes, uh, not too ironically, I brought in a, a handful of folks that I had worked with in the past at Lasco um, who were available or had been at different places. And so they're here now, um, and mostly operational. And, you know, we've really kind of worked on getting the systems right, getting operational procedures where we want them so that we could then consider the possibility of actually growing and adding locations, which so is what we're doing now. Which which concept, uh, Nymphas or... Uh, Antone, An- Antones, Antones, yeah. um, did you decide to focus on first as far as scaling? Where do you think your moneymaker was going to be? Well, it's, it's difficult because 
I think both have the opportunity to do quite well. Um, so the Antones is a small, fast, casual footprint. It's a sandwich shop, essentially. It actually grew. It evolved over the years. It actually started out as like a market. Um, it was like a, it was called Antones Import Company, and it was where people could go to get spices from around the world or dry goods or you know things like that. We've we've since evolved out of that grocery type market to just being a, a doing one thing nice, really well. yeah, a, a very good um, kind of boutique sandwich shop. Um, 25 or so sandwiches, soups, salads, et cetera. And it's fast casual. And, you know, the footprint is 2,000, 2,500 square feet. Ninfa's, on the other hand, is a beast. It's um, 7,500 square feet. It's 300 seats. Um, it's a a destination. It's a huge destination. um, And it's a very, very big operation. 130 employees. Um, It's a it's a massive operation. I've got to go there before I leave. Oh, yes, you do. <laughs> yes, you do. Um, and so if we, as we do more ninfas, we will do one here, one there, and, and we don't have plans on doing a whole lot because it's a massive commitment. It's a big expenditure. Um, it's just a lot to take on. Like that is like a legacy, bro. Like that is absolutely. A, yeah. That, that's a staple in a community that represents that community. That's close to that community. Yeah. Uh, I see why you would want to where Anton's, I feel like is, is smaller. It's easier sure. to replicate, le- for replicate sure. and to get people into, to manage a lot fewer moving parts, yeah. a lot simpler, right? Uh, in theory, in theory. <laughs> so I could be wrong. Well, you know, one of the other mantras or quotes that, that we love and, Again, from from one of my former colleagues, but uh, don't ever confuse simple with easy, because yeah. <laughs> it's just it's never the same. It's never the it's. It, you would think a two thousand square foot sandwich shop would be so easy to run and manage. It's not. It never is. It doesn't matter the size. It's so. What tough. are the biggest challenges that you do deal with with the consistency in, in managing that? What, what's going? What makes it so complicated? So, um, particularly when you have multiple locations, consistency in product, right? Because we we make everything in house and it's all kind of hand done in the store. And you know, there have been times where you go to one location and you, you taste the gumbo, and then you go to the other location and it doesn't taste the same. And you're like, well the recipe is the same. Why doesn't it taste the same? So that's challenging. You have different people making it and somebody is so a little how, let's, let's, heavy handed with yeah, the salt let's or something. That. That, that, that is a reoccurring issue that happens in any restaurant Absolutely. concept that has multiple locations. How do you address that issue? What did you do to address that issue? So you bang the table a lot and you say, there's a recipe for a reason, right? We're all using the same product. It's not like somebody's getting their you know, ham from you're one all place starting with the, the same stuff. Yeah. You, you lay it out all on a table and it's the exact same. So the biggest challenge is getting people to actually follow the recipes and the systems and procedures that you have in place. Because, you know, unfortunately the truth of the matter is sometimes people tend to be lazy and it's just easier to forget that or not prep that correctly or just cause you know, is anybody really watching me this morning? Nobody's watching me. So, you know, whatever. And then you end up with a different end product. Um, that's certainly challenging. And, you know, I'm sure you've heard a million times. Doesn't matter whether you're a full service restaurant or the smallest mom and pop. Finding reliable, good staff is a s- tremendous challenge right now. The labor market is extraordinarily skinny right now. And it's tough. I mean, it's really tough to find people um, that 
do a very good job. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, bringing the whole thing full circle, if you treat people right, hopefully they'll stay with yeah. you and they'll help you grow and, and to, all that kind of stuff. To go a layer deeper on how to get people to follow the, the standard operating procedures and the systems that you create to make sure the product comes out the same every time, what things have you done to encourage people to to follow the, the standard operating procedures like once like how do we address that like what that's the next level to the conversation i feel like so you know you've heard the expression and it's common in the industry is consistent constant gentle pressure yep right a lot of oversight a lot of repetitive hey this is the way it needs to be done are you doing it this way you know, spot checking, um, looking over people's shoulder. I mean, it's, it's not anything dramatically novel or out there. It's paying attention, um, testing, tasting, and it's oversight. Yeah. And, and, and again, it's hopefully finding good managers who then take that to the next step. Cause obviously we can't be everywhere every day. And I, you know, I sit in this office all day long, you know, behind a computer. Um, that was, you know what? That was the joke from the very, very beginning when I said, <laughs> people, people say, why'd you get out of working in a law firm? Why'd you stop working in a law firm? I said, well, I was a young associate. I hated going to an office all day and just sitting behind a computer. They said, that's great. And you're in the restaurant business. What do you do? I said, I go to an office and I sit behind a computer all day. <laughs> oh, man. So I think, I think we've kind of drilled the, the point home with that. I, one thing I'm really curious about, I, I got to... Um, Listen to your interview with Eric uh, Sanders. Yeah, yeah, uh, Sa uh, Sandler. Yeah, Sandler, Eric Sandler. Sandler yeah. Thank you. And uh, he, the, the conversation, I think this was like 2017. Mm -hmm. It was around the time where you've gotten in, you did the assessment, you started to identify the, the areas that needed to change, you started making action. At this point, you were yeah. taking action. You had taken action at this point. You had done some specific things at uh, Nymphas specifically yep. where things really started to turn around. And for the, you guys got really great recognition in 2017. Yep better than it's ever been. What things happened to, to take it from a struggling operation? And then by 2017, what were the key things that, that really took that, that restaurant to a point where people are today are saying it's better than it's ever been? Yeah. I mean, fortunately for me, again, I, I stepped into this situation and, and you know, my whole thought process was just don't screw it up. Um, but you know, it wasn't that it was struggling. It was that things could be done better. Mm -hmm. Um, the food quality, the chef has been there 13, 14 years. The food quality is, is really, really good now, and that's been dramatically improved. Um, we just put better systems in place. We worked on, you know, how do we do payroll? How do we do scheduling? Um, Can you give me some before and afters, like some specific uh, examples of the of the changes you made that really sure, impacted? Sure, sure. Um, and and the, the other one I was going to get to is training. So we, we put in, yeah, we, we put in some very specific, um, you know, written training manuals, which we hadn't had before, and, you know, I should go back. I mean, really the number one thing was putting great people in place, mm -hmm. right? That's first and foremost, got to, got to do that. So we switched out with, with the exception of the chef. Um, most of the leadership in, in the, in the front of the house has changed. Um, and so then we started working on the systems and the procedures, particularly with training, um, put in some, you know, very specific manuals, um, which specific two week training, well, a training manual in terms of front of the house. Um, this is how you bust the table or this is how you take an order. This is how you ring it in. Um, not, I hate when people say dumbing it down. We didn't dumb it down, but we explained it better. Um, and we really were, were focused on making it and we did it 
in both English and Spanish, as you would imagine, um, particularly here in, you know, in Houston in general, but um, at NINFAs in particular, you know, everybody that works there is bilingual. Um, and some uh, are better with English than others. And we realized that. So we did all of our training stuff in both English and Spanish. And that made a difference. That helped. Um, but really breaking things down about customer service, um, you know, how long should it be in between table touches and how long does it take to clear plates and, you know, down to how do we get food out of the window and, you know, get it run to the tables in time. So we implemented a very fairly stringent two-week training program, particularly for front-of-the-house folks, um, which has helped a lot. Scheduling, you know, we put in uh, some software, you know, hot schedules that we've learned to adapt and, and make use of not only for scheduling, but for the other things that it provides. Um, payroll, we changed, you know, we used to pay people in cash at the end of every night and that caused various problems. Uh, not the least of which is the reporting of everything. So we switched to paychecks only. Um, you know, we lost some people, they wanted the cash every night and, that's kind of just the way it goes. But from our perspective, from a business perspective, to get things where we wanted them and, and up to snuff, that was a change we had to make. And that was a big change. It was a big adjustment for people, and it was difficult. Um, but we're in a better place now, and, yeah. and now it's accepted, and that's just kind of the way it is. I mean, whenever there's change, people oh. are going to stomp and scream and roll around. Right. And change is painful. Change hurts, but change Always. makes us better. If you're, yes. not, if you're comfortable, you're not doing something right. right. It's exactly. that area of discomfort that good things happen. Exactly. Uh, good, good pain. Well, and, and, and now that we've done that in the past couple of years that we've spent, and, and we did a lot of physical improvements to that location because it's, it's an old space and it yeah. needed a lot of help. So we spent a lot of money on just physical stuff, which, you know, notwithstanding the fact that we needed to do it and things look better, but that in and of itself, making the physical improvements, showing that we cared about what the building looked like, we were willing to spend a lot of money. I literally got down there with a shovel and was digging dirt in the kitchen, you know, with, with the, the contractors. Cause I, it was important for me to show the employees that I was willing to get my hands dirty to do it. Um, I think it made an impression on them. I think it helped them understand that we were really serious about taking something that was really, really, really good already and trying to make it great um, and, and, and constantly improving it. And so now, a couple of years later, we are in the position where we're comfortable with the idea of doing our second original Ninfas location. And we're doing one that's in the, the Galleria area of Houston. It's a very kind of it's a higher end area. A um, lot of visitor traffic. The the big gallery is there. It's a, it's a major attraction and it's a very expensive piece of property. It's probably the most expensive lease I'll ever see. Um, but we feel we're, we're ready for that now. We're, we're in a position to do it. Um, we're really excited about it. What we, makes you know that you're ready? What key variables are you referring to or, or that give you that gut feeling that well, says I said, you're I ready? think I'm ready. Okay. I don't know about no, okay. you know, but yeah, you never know until it actually happens. But we know from what the feedback is in the community that there's a demand for it. Um, there's such great name recognition that, we're not worried about people saying, oh, what is that? Or, or not understanding the concept, which is a 
huge benefit. Um, it's a luxury for us because not everybody has that. But then, uh, again, going back to I've got people here at the corporate level that I trust a lot, um, that I've worked with before, that I know are capable of getting the new place open, training the people properly, um, getting the, the systems and, and operating procedures that we've now developed in place over there so that we start off on the right foot immediately. Um, because, you know, we're making a very significant investment in this and there's a lot of risk involved. Um, so I don't think we would feel comfortable doing it unless we knew that we've got the procedures, we've got the systems in place and we've got the people in place that will be able to execute on the vision, which is not a hundred percent replicating the original cause you can't, mm -hmm. but bringing that as close to fruition as we possibly can in this new location, it'll be the same menu. Um, it'll look different because the building we're in now is 70 years old or whatever it is. Um, and this is a bright, shiny new kind of, you know, development kind of mixed use shopping center. Um, but we feel like we're ready to take that step and make that investment and take that risk. Um, because we, we really feel now the marketplace is ready for it. The community is ready for it. They're excited about it. And we have the human capital in place to make it successful. Yeah. I think put back to what you were saying earlier, uh, Taking uh, Nina's to the point where it, it, it recovered and, and it was never really in a bad place, but you definitely made a noticeable difference, right? Difference, yes. right? So you're staying fresh. Yes. Uh, you, you brought Which this is crucial. Back. Yeah. So you, you you brought this brand back. It's staying fresh, and now everybody, it's top of mind again. So yes. it, it's it. They say that you know the, just your ability to stay fresh and to do things to stay at the top of mind. Uh, you don't have to reinvent, but when you go through and you do a facelift and you you put those systems and processes and procedures in a way, the right. training in place. Now you're top of mind and now you can stay fresh again with a new location. Yeah. And, uh, and customers see it too. It's mm -hmm. not just the employees, but customers see it too. And that certainly has an impact. Yeah. And I, I want to reflect on what you were saying earlier about the, 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 the training and how you took the training to the next level. And I think one thing that just needs to, to paraphrase that is you, you've got to paint a picture of mm -hmm. perfection. And a lot of people, they think that these, these uh, standard operating procedures, all these manuals, are restrictive, but really people need a picture of what the job done right looks like. And if you don't cement that in writing, then interpretations are going to pop up and different variations are going to start to pop up. And you got to paint that picture so people know that they're executing the job exactly the way you want it. There's a sense of completion, right? Yeah. I did it. I finished it. It's like bowling and not being able to see the pins, right? right. Did, did, right. I, did, I, did I do a good job? I don't know. So like, that's what happens. You, you're showing them the pins. You're showing them how well they did. Well, and, and, and that absolutely ties back to what we were talking about before with Antone's in terms of same recipe, but different results. Um, you know, you have to be able to walk somebody through that procedure step by step. And, you know, we, anybody can think that it's elementary, but it's not necessarily intuitive to everybody to everybody and so the be the better job that you can do in guiding them down that path particularly the first times they're learning it the better off you're going to be mm -hmm. and in theory it becomes second nature yeah. one, one of the biggest challenges we've had is on one hand it's wonderful that we have so many long-term employees 
we have a server at the original Ninfas. The restaurant is 46 years old. She's been there 43 years. Wow. I mean, she is literally 43 years of the 46 that it's been open. It's amazing. Yeah. So that kind of stuff is wonderful. On the flip side, after a while, folks that have been around a long time get into certain habits. Again, they don't like change. Um, and sometimes it's difficult to adjust. And sometimes it's difficult to get them to understand that there may be a better way. Even though it's different, it, it may actually make their lives easier and make their lives better. But there, there's a lot of resistance to that. Um, we love loyalty. We love people who've been around a long time. And it's wonderful. Um, the challenge there sometimes is making sure they don't slide into habits just because they figure I've been doing it this way for a long time, or it's just easier this way. And I've been here so long, nobody's going to tell me any different. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, it's tough. I mean, that, that, that is definitely a challenge. So how do you, uh, address that challenge? Cause I'm sure that's, you're not the only person sure. that has this challenge. People that exist prior to the new way of doing things. How do you address those people? So there, there are, a number of different ways. I think it's, it's easy to point out the ways that don't generally work. One of which is you come walking in and say, it's my way or the highway. You're an idiot. Why are you doing this this way? You know, you will change tomorrow or you're going to be fired. Mm -hmm. That's probably not the way to go. <laughs> um, but what, what generally has to happen is it's a process, right? It's just not walking in one day and say, this is the way it's going to be. Um, and that process needs to start with an explanation of why. Yes. Why? Why are we doing Let's figure out together, collectively, right? This is going to be a, a team effort. We're going to collectively figure out, is there a better way to do this? Here's a suggestion, right? What do you think about this? How would you do it? You know, don't, don't you think that there, there may be a better way? Or here's something that may be more efficient. Or we've tested it this way. Look at this result. What do you think about this result? Does this, I mean, would this work for you? Yeah. You know, I mean, is, is there is, uh, anything else we can add to you? Yeah. This make it even better. What you do you think? think? Yeah. Get, you know, make it a collaborative process. Make, make them it, own the decision. Right. And, and feel invested, feel invested in it, feel, feel interested in it. Now, you know, that doesn't always work. It doesn't work every single time. And it's not the most appropriate thing for every single situation. But if you have the ability to do that and there, there is an appropriate situation, you're going to always get much better results than you would just kind of walking in and slapping the, the manual down on the table and say, see this picture? It's got to look like this every single time and this is how you're going to do it. Um, you know, obviously, the, the, those are the two extremes. There's probably a happier middle ground. Um, but again, bringing it all back if you're treating those people well and you're making them feel involved and you're making them feel invested and you're not talking down or talking at them and, and just demanding obsequience and just this is what's going to happen and you're going to do it, then you've got a much better chance of keeping that person on and getting them you know, involved and, and actually being happy about hopefully being happy about making some changes. Yes, man. I've loved this conversation and we're already at our agreed upon time. Uh, sorry to abuse your time. I'm not trying to, but I'm really loving this. Conversation. I don't feel abused at all. Anything you want to add. I don't want to cut you short. Anything you were hoping to bring to the conversation that, that didn't come out. Now's the time to get it out. Man. I mean, we've touched on some really great, you know, uh, great subjects. And, and I think, you know, really coming back to, 
that overarching theme of uh, treating people right, making it that collaborative process, being concerned about how you're being perceived, being self-aware really makes a huge difference. The only other thing I'd add, which, you know, again, is not anything novel, and I'm not breaking any new ground, but when I say uh, the more that I think about what we've done, particularly here over the past few years, and some of the changes we've made, some of the improvements we've made, things that have really helped and, and, and made a difference, is trying to get things back to simplicity, trying to make things more simple. Um, I feel like there's a tendency a lot to end up creating more work than is necessary, making things a lot more complicated because you think you're doing work, right? You think you're doing all this stuff and we're going to, we're going to create all these, these, you know, various new ways to do things. Even though you want to improve your processes and procedures, the baseline should be, how can we simplify this? How can we make it the most simple possible? Um, even here in the office, you know, I'll, I'll get, things sometimes where some of our operations people or our corporate ops folks will come and say, you know, we're working on this and we're, we're, we're trying to create this new program. It's going to be great. And it's, it's going to increase revenue and start laying out all these steps and everything that needs to happen and all the moving parts. And, you know, after a while you look at it and you go, I'm all for increasing revenue. You know, that's a, that's a very noble goal, but are we just spinning ourselves into knots and circles and is it really going to make that much of a difference can we simplify this how can we break this down because as as we all know time is scarce time is the most valuable resource and i i think anything that can be done while you're trying to improve while you're trying to grow while you're trying to you know get your systems and your op operations better how can you simplify it how can you make better use of your time your resources, your people, your human capital. And that comes down to simplicity. Mm -hmm. And is there a way to make it a little bit more simple? Awesome. Great stuff. Uh, and I've been wrapping up every free flowing portion of the conversation with asking this question. Uh, Restaurant Unstoppable's mission statement is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. So let me ask you, how have you transformed over these 14 years in the industry? Who were you when you got into the industry and who are you today? Well, I think when I got into the industry, um, I was in a position where I'd always kind of been working for somebody else or trying to please, you know, somebody else. I think now uh, over the years I've evolved to transform myself to be a bit more of, of a leadership role model. And I wanted to do that really to give back. I mean, I think, I think being involved in this industry and this community gives us a great opportunity to give back and to have influence and impact other people. So I feel like if I look back to 15 years ago, what I was most concerned about, it was very, very different from what it is today. And I think what I'm more concerned about today is what kind of impact am I having on other people? How am I being perceived? How can I contribute to the community, to the industry, um, and make other people better? 
And I was never really concerned about that before. And I find myself being more and more concerned about that. I feel like by transforming myself to some extent over those years, I can actually have a bigger impact and transformative impact on the community and the restaurant industry here. Well, thank you for taking the time to have an influence and impact on me and my listeners. I can speak on their behalf and my behalf that you did make a difference. This was a great conversation and uh, I cannot wait for the speed round. We're going to be right back to bust that sucker out. Stand by. It's the entrepreneurial myth, and I'm sure you're familiar with it. It's the idea that when you open your own restaurant, life is going to get easy because you get to do exactly what it is that you love, whether that's front of house or back of house. And then reality kicks in, right? You've got to do all this other stuff that comes with owning a business like taxes, HR, payroll, really boring stuff. That's where Gusto comes in. Gusto makes payroll, taxes, HR actually easy for small business. And if you want to add on 401k or health benefits, it's a breeze. Those old school clunky payroll providers just were not built for the modern small business. Not to mention, you, you've got to compete with the big guys. But how do you compete with the big guys when you don't have big guy bucks? Well, with Gusto. That's how. Get back to doing what it is you love and let Gusto handle the rest. And because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, you'll get your first three months free when you run your first payroll. That's Gusto.com slash unstoppable. Again, Gusto.com slash unstoppable. So Revel Systems is a complete POS built to help grow your expanding business. I stand by Revel, and I can tell you why it's so great, but I'd rather get my man Colton Schultz, who's with Grand Junction Subs in the Craft Cave, to tell you why he loves Revel. We have been working with Revel for several years, who has partnered with us to streamline our operations. We have implemented delivery management, employee management, sales reporting, kitchen display screens, and so much more. We also utilize mobile order takers and kitchen display systems that are extremely customizable. Nice. So if there's just one thing that you love the most about Rebel Systems, what would it be? It's definitely their vast reporting abilities on the back end. We utilize a lot of the reports such as speed of service, taxes, sales reports, labor reports. It's all there to help you run your business. Beautiful. Guys, and if you're listening to this, Revel works with businesses that are looking to implement cutting-edge technology that helps increase revenue, improve efficiencies, and enhance experience of their employees and their customers. To learn more, head over to revelsystems.com slash unstoppable. We're back, and the first question I have for you is what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Empathy. What is your biggest weakness? I'd have to say there's an element of procrastination. Okay. What is one question you ask or thing you look for during the interview process? What would your previous subordinates or direct reports say about you? Ooh, what are you looking for? Uh, I want people to say that they have developed people. They, they, they have contributed to other people's success and they have created whatever it is, managers, leaders, you know, how have you developed people? And I want, I want people to say that their prior employees would say that about them. What is your biggest challenge today? <laughs> biggest challenge is labor market, finding good people and keeping them. And how are you dealing with that? Trying to cast a broader net. Uh, trying to uh, offer more benefits, you know, really trying to make us an attractive spot for people to, to stay. What is one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team? I'm talking core values, a way to be. Be honest. What is one uncommon standard of service your team? So this is something that you teach your team a way to go above and beyond to, to really stand out. Contribute to your community at all times. What is one book that will make us a better person or restaurant operator? 
We fed an island. What is the biggest takeaway from that book? You have to be willing to give back and to support your communities. What is one technology you've adopted within the four walls of your operation that's had a huge impact on profitability, communication, efficiency, anything along those lines? Uh, software called B-Mobile, which we use for our wholesale distribution. Okay. And what exactly does it do? Uh, allows drivers, uh, our delivery drivers, to communicate and to track um, what they put out into stores and what they bring back. Um, it's, it's a really good kind of tracking device. That's something that I was hoping to get into today, the whole wholesale element of your operation. We did not get enough time. Uh, it was a great conversation. Don't get me wrong. But maybe I'll... The next time I'm through Absolutely. Houston, we can do a tell you about dive. We, 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 made, we, we distributed 2 million sandwiches last year. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. <laughs> uh, what is one thing you feel restaurateurs don't do well enough or often enough? Uh, get training in disciplines with which they're not familiar, whether that's HR, legal, accounting, etc. cetera. Um, if you can't run a business, doesn't matter how good a cook you are or what a great bartender you are. You got to know the business. I love it. This is the last question. It's a doozy. Get ready for it. <laughs> if you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure, with the exception of three pieces of wisdom, three things you know to be true that you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy. Very appropriate for the hey, legacy yeah. restaurants. <laughs> what would those three pieces of wisdom be? Boy. Okay. Do no harm. Um, That's one. Yes. So do no harm. Contribute to your community and take care of your people. Beautiful. I have loved this conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your story, your knowledge and mentorship. We wrap up every chat by calling somebody out. So who's one independent restaurant operator, somebody you respect and admire and believe would make a great guest mentor like you've made for us today. Uh, Russell Ibarra. Okay. Um, he has, uh, concepts in Houston in the surrounding areas called gringos and Jimmy Changas. Okay. They are, uh, Tex-Mex places. But he is so involved in giving back. Um, He takes care of his people like you wouldn't believe to the point of, uh, I'll give you 30 seconds. He pays for restorative dental work for a lot of his employees because he feels like if they're more confident smiling, they're going to be better and they're going to be better people. And he pays for that. He pays for prosthesis if, if people need it. I mean, tremendous individual in a great business person. It's a hundred million dollar business, but a better person. It's weird how those things go hand in hand. Sometimes. Uh, you know so. what? Uh, there is a direct <laughs> correlation. Let me tell you, it is a direct correlate. And he embodies that every day. Russell, look out. I'm coming after you. I can't wait to get you on the show and let the folks at home know how can we connect with you? If we want to come join your team, if we want to check out your restaurants, if we want to, uh, just follow you on social media. What's the best way to connect? Uh, LegacyRestaurants.com. It's um, you know got uh, the various brands on there and ways to connect. Well, if you go to the individual websites, um, we're all over social media and uh, would love to have everybody check it out. Beautiful. Uh, and head over to the, the show notes. I guarantee you that guarantee you that there'll be a summary of today's discussion 
as well as a link to any tool service recommendation, head over to the show notes and I'll, I'll have all that contact information over there. Uh, and again, I just can't say it enough. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for taking the time. Uh, there is no questioning. You are unstoppable. <laughs> Cheers. Thank you so much. All right, there we go. Another episode in the archive here at Restaurant Unstoppable. I hope you all found value. Before I let you go, I have to remind you, please sign up for the Restaurant Unstoppable email list. That is where you will never miss an episode and you get the behind the scenes of what's going on here, where I'm at, what's on my mind, and what the future of Restaurant Unstoppable looks like, and you can have an influence on that. Don't forget to connect on social media. That's slash Restaurant Unstoppable on Facebook and at Eric Cacciatore, E-R-I-C. C-A-C-C-I-A-T-O-R-E on Instagram. But the most important thing you can do to support this mission of inspiring, empowering, and transforming our industry is by sharing this sucker with anybody and everybody you know who's aspiring to be great in the industry. All right. Thank you so much for sticking around this long. Until next time, peace out. Peace out.